And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us through the break. And I got my, uh, our, what I refer to as our Maven of Macro Research, Mr. Chase Taylor, joining us again from P- Pinecone Macro Research. And uh, this is the second take because we had a little techno- technological glitch there. But w- what we were saying before the first time is that, man, y- you know, it felt like uh, for a good run there, eight to 10 years, everything on the macro side was so quiet. Um, I, I felt like the macro story was central banks. My, how the stories have changed. I feel like uh, every day I look at the markets and I'm like, man, this is this is Chase's playground. Um, obviously, we've had you on talk about the energy play. Um, we've seen oil take a 24 percent, you know, header right right in the last uh, two and a half three weeks. Um, and I've been warning the people on the show that this is part of the game, right? If you want to, I was joking and saying it's like. Uh, you know, it's like trying to hold on to a scalded cat or, or you know, it's it, it can be rough. Um, but, you know, I'm fine with that as long as the underlying macroeconomic picture hasn't changed. So I defer to you, sir. Uh, <laughs> obviously, you're paying attention to what's going on in energy markets. Uh, we've had the OPEC plus announcements. There's so many different conflicting opinions and so we're coming to you to give us the lay of the land and then also just what you make of, of macro wins in general and kind of uh, kind of lay it out for us. What's changed since the last time we talked? And most importantly, what are you seeing on the energy side of things? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with energy and then don't let me forget. I'll, I'll jump on the kind of broad market side. Um, energy is, is sort of a – and broad markets really both are going to kind of get hit by two things, one, one being the Fed and the other being the new Omicron uh, variant. That is kind of what really started all this last Friday whenever the news broke. That just started crushing everything in very thinly traded illiquid markets. and But kind of, you know, hasn't really let go this week. We keep getting a lot of bad closes on oil and stocks both. Uh, as far as fundamentals go, as long as that variant isn't, you know, going to be significantly worse than the Delta variant as far as creating... Uh, a lot of lockdowns and you know limiting oil demand the the picture for oil is, is as good as it has ever been at any point during this this bull market so i'm still very bullish oil but but with you know definitely an eye on the variant to see how that ends up playing out because that could that could lead to real demand destruction but everything we know about it right now uh, we know it spreads fast but so far obviously it's too early to make any sort of real call but so far it looks like it's going to be fairly mild uh, so if that if that holds and that data holds, then you know I I just see no demand side issues for oil, and I still don't think there's going to be enough supply. And the interesting thing too there is you know you you have a lot of folks making significant investment decisions on new production. You know a lot a lot of capex calls are being made this time of year. So I'm sure that all of a sudden having that 20 25 percent crash in oil prices, especially with a lot of folks unhedged all of a sudden not wanting to give away money on hedges anymore suggests a lot less capex than we were going to have, you know, a month ago. And all that does is create this really tight supply uh, going into next year that, you know, maybe could have loosened up a little bit if prices had stayed up in the seventies, a little longer eighties. So I'm personally still very bullish oil, but definitely watching uh, the virus Uh, as far as kind of the markets as a whole, like I say, kind of double whammy. Obviously, you have the virus issue, which could become something. But uh, on the flip side, you know, the, the Fed has gone from really being mostly concerned about the labor market 
to this week clearly flipping to being mostly concerned about inflation. So now all of a sudden they care about inflation and are showing they're getting a little bit scared of it. So now, you know, good data comes out and that's sort of bad for the market because that means yeah, maybe the Fed's going to pull rate hikes forward. Uh, so that kind of added a new dynamic, I think, to markets that are going to, it's going to, it's going to be very interesting moving forward, uh, with, with data releases as they come out. Yeah. No, it, it's the, the, the virus thing to me, I, you know, I, again, and I've said this, I've said this really since the pandemic started, I, I am not a virologist. <laughs> I'm not an immunologist. I, I, I just stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night, right? Um, so I, I will claim no expertise on that level. But, I, you know, the, the doctor that essentially broke the story, the doctor that, if I'm correct, right, the female doctor out of uh, South Africa, uh, even she's come out and said, look, this thing isn't serious. This is no big deal. Um, it feels to me like this is an overreaction. The interesting thing I see about this is even on a day like today, we've got a lot of value names that are solidly green on the day. That you and I both know that is once again an odd departure from the last 10 years. Um, and then you watch the tech names getting hammered at the same time rates are falling. Do you th do you think that do you think this is just a weird anomaly or do you think that we might start? You know, do you are we seeing some material softness here in tech? I mean, it, it's it's definitely it's is real i it it's it is odd though like you say like i mean it's not it's not really a rates driven move obviously right. the fed the fed coming coming into play and saying hey like we we're not going to ignore inflation anymore i i think i think that probably scares tech because you you kind of start seeing those rate hikes you know and now instead of them being years off in the distance they're more like 6 months maybe even less off in the distance uh so that i mean it makes sense that that would start to spook tech uh somewhat but i've I've been a little bit surprised by by you know the the extreme weakness especially as i mean we're making a new lows in the long bonds right now you know you'd think you think tech would at least be you know a little flatter than 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 what it what it's doing so yeah i, I think that's a little surprising but yeah i you know I guess the value guy in me is 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 speaking here and this little bit of bias on my side but i'd like to think that you know, you, you look at the COVID premium that was built into a lot of those tech names, you know, that were just, you know, I think Apple's a great example. Now, it's a very mild example, but, you know, that whole run Apple had from the middle of the 2000s, really all the way until last year, the stock was pretty consistently valued between like a 15 to 19 multiple. Then all of a sudden it split its stock and the multiple doubled, right? Um, maybe this is just kind of the burn off of that excess valuation, that was built into it in um, and the fact that I just said that probably means it's that that's not the case. Right. So um, Apple, call, Apple calls. Yeah. Well, and I mean, killing the, you know, killing this, this, this ludicrous tech valuation thing is I feel, you feel like you're fighting Dracula, you know, you empty a clip into him and he just keeps coming. I mean, it just, uh, <laughs> so I don't want to prematurely call anything. The other thing though, I do think is interesting is the action in, um, in, in arc, Right. The, the old the old Kathy Wood standby um, that is getting absolutely lit up. As a matter of fact, um, if, I'm, if I can speak my book a little bit here, we, we may or may not have jumped in on Wednesday morning into an inverse ETF on ARC. And um, I got to tell you that, that it's a wonderful little hedge. Uh, it's playing out like yeah. a gem. I, I think that might be more representative of anything, don't you? Yeah, I mean, and, and the chart is just horrific. It. it... I mean, five and a half percent as, as, as we tape this right now, you know, before the market closed down about five and a half percent. So 
and and that's kind of falling off just a cliff on the chart just just brutal price action so i, I think it's a, it's a good innovation that that uh that inverse etf <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, the thing that I, the the thing that just, you know, and I, I, in no way am I trying to spike the football. I hope people don't get blown up in, in, in arc. I'm I'm not saying any of those things it, but it does. It it feels like a bit of sanity rushing in, you know, cause you, you look at these people and go, you know, what do you think? Remember? Cause the narrative was, Oh, their research is just so amazing. Their research is just so amazing. Okay. Now that they've given up, what is that? What, what have they had about a six, 60, no 50% pullback from their high, something like that coming up 40, 50% pullback from their high in a year where the S and P's up 18. Right. So just goes to show you guys, there is no bulletproof research and, and, and a surefire good research doesn't get you 30 to 40 a year, you know, annualized gains. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you'd agree with that. Yeah, I've had good research this week, and, and my PL is bad this week, so it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not always uh, yeah. correlated. Right, right, not highly correlated. Okay, so what do you see now, T- Chase? One of the things I'm seeing, and one of my underlying beliefs, is I'm watching all this fear about Omicron, which I think is just more. Can you say the word fear porn? I, I don't want to make a net. Yeah, I just feel like it's fear porn. You know, just it's over the top. I, I personally think that. I mean, all the data just shows that it doesn't look like it's very serious. Now, obviously, keep the ear to the ground. And if it gets serious, change perspective. Um, outside of the action you're seeing on that front, every single place I look, all I see are inflationary forces. Um, you know, everybody's like, oh, what about the bad jobs number? Look, I think the jobs numbers are going to be really weird for probably the next six months. And the reason why I think that is the conditions are bizarre, right? Like when, when have you ever come out of a recession where consumer spending and income went up, right? Where corporate, you know, where, where, where consumer balance sheets improved. As a matter of fact, where you reached a record high in household wealth. I, I, I think right now, and I've thought this for rates for a while, and I think, I, I think, and again, feel free, you, this is your playground, so feel free to disagree. But what it feels like to me is that um, a lot, there's a lot of macro confusion right now on what's going on. I think, you know, you'll hear some noise and things like jobs data and stuff like that. But if you just keep your, you know, again, just looking at the data, um, everything I look at looks inflationary. Is that what you're seeing? And, and where do you think we're all, we are on that inflation versus deflation debate at this point? Yeah, so I would, I would say not everything I'm looking at is uh, inflationary. I, I do think supply chain kind of stresses are, are starting to ease Yep. And, and will ease significantly in the first quarter. Um, but, but you're still, I mean, just if you look at the levels of all that, it's still really high. It's just more of like a rate of change easing. But I think as we get into the first quarter, a lot of that's going to get better. Uh, but when I look at the ener- obviously the energy side is, has really lightened up, so you, you, that that could help you know in the next couple of months. Uh, I think you know car sales, a lot of used car prices, new car prices was kind of a, a significant driver there for a while of inflation. Uh, a lot of the microchips are starting to get uh, you know exported at much heavier numbers all of a sudden, so. I'm assuming they're going to have a lot of cars just kind of sitting there waiting to get chips slapped into them and they can get them out for sale. So that, that the stress there should be relieved. Uh, but I think, you know, you look at housing stress, the, the prices are not really going to move there much, uh, whether rent or, you know, sale prices. So that's going to stay high. I think food prices are going to have to stay high because largely because fertilizer prices are just, you know, make, making new all-time highs and going to cause a lot of stress for uh, for farmers. So it's kind of a it's mixed it's a mixed bag like there there are some 
still some very structural inflationary forces. You look at, you know, producer price prices, whether they're in the U.S., China, Europe, they're still extremely high. And a lot of that's going to have to feed through into consumer inflation or, you know, or margin compression. Either way, it's kind of bad news. Um, but I, I do think inflation at some point in the first quarter, maybe maybe it takes until, you know, late first quarter, should start to, to kind of roll over in a in a material way and kind of ease into the rest of 2022. But as of now, yeah, I mean, it, you just still have this supply and demand mismatch where supplies just cannot catch up with the just extreme demand. Like you, like you say, you come out of a recession with, you know, demand figures, especially for goods that we, we've just never seen before. And, you know, obviously the shipping and the trucking industries, they can't just, you can't just scale up to, right. you know, a kind of a, a, a two Sigma demand event that happens overnight. It's not possible. Yeah, yeah, a little, little bit more complicated, and I agree with you. And I, I, I honestly think that this is kind of this dichotomy, um, you know, because you have you have people on both sides of it that are like, oh, it's inflate, you know, it's it's the Weimar Republic. That uh, <laughs> you have other people that are like, we're about ready to enter a Great Depression, um, and then I think you have more moderate views. Then on the inflationary argument, right? You've got. Um, this is completely transitory and it's all about uh, supply chains. You got other people. It's, oh, it's all about, you know, hyperinflation on the way. Uh, even with all these arguments, I, I personally think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I understand the people that are putting it all in the supply chains. That, that, that's a very inflationary force and it will be transitory. What I don't think that those people are looking at is I don't think they're digging into the next layer of data, right? Um, you look at the structural changes, look at, you know, again, what we're talking about happening in the jobs number, look at the age of millennials, right? Um, look at, you know, I, the millennials are now at the age of forced labor, meaning right. As soon as the government gravy quits rolling in, they've got to work now. Um, you know, you look at, uh, look at, uh, social security going up 6%. Um, I, I, I actually agree with when I said everything, I meant the key factors that I was looking at, because I agree with your assessment uh, 100%, which is there's things that are and there are things that aren't. Um, and the things that aren't, I agree with those people. I think that those are supply chain issues. And, and like you said, I think they're going to get resolved pretty quickly. As a matter of fact, we're beginning to see that resolution in the private equity business that we're involved in. Um, you see things starting to break free. You know, they're starting to loosen up. Um, but what's really interesting to me is how people have, you know, I think the, I think the, um, um, now I'm forgetting the other, another person on the other side, but well, I, you could look at like Peter Schiff and Kathy Wood, right? You know, that to me is kind of like the polar opposites in this debate. Peter Schiff is like, you know, this is the beginning of the Weimar Republic. Kathy Wood's like, it's completely transitory. I think it's somewhere in between. I think certain things are transitory as soon as supply chains ease. And I think there are going to be certain things that aren't. Is that, does that jive with what you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely think some things are and some things aren't. And and the, the argument I've been I've been making and in, in, in my writing has been, I, I I am I'm in the camp of we are in a sexual a secular uh, you know inflation like yeah. the beginning, but but that that has ups and downs. It, mm-hmm. It's just you know those troughs are higher. You know you get kind of higher lows and you have higher highs all of a sudden. So I think you know we we just went through a regime shift, and I think a lot of people think we go right back to. You know, one percent inflation and two percent growth, and I, I just don't think that's true. I think there are a lot of significant large forces that will keep that from happening. Whether that's you know the if, if you look at working age uh, folks in in China, like that that's vanishing quickly. They have they have terrible demographics, and that was you know that was where everyone had you know all of their stuff made. 
because they had a lot of labor and it was cheap. Well, it's, they don't have a lot anymore or, you know, it's less and it's not as cheap. Uh, so, you know, when we do start onshoring, even if it's a little bit at a time, like that, our labor costs more. And, and that, that's another, you know, big inflationary right. factor is, is, you know, we have what people are calling strike tober because there was a significant amount of strikes in the U S and labor all of a sudden has a good bit of bargaining power. They're getting, you know, significant wage increases you know, over 4% is, is kind of the running, uh, total for everyone, but it's even, it's even less at lower skill. Uh, positions, lower paid positions, they're getting significant, you know, wage increases. Like you said, you know, if you, if you give all the old people a 6% raise for social security, obviously inflation's eating a lot of that, but that's still a lot of money for, for the people on fixed income. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that can, can help boost spending and, and keep, keep inflation high. I, I think, I think there's a lot of secular forces that are going to, are going to keep inflation just in a, in a newer regime that's higher than we're used to. That doesn't mean it doesn't dip down low again, you know, for periods. It just means, you know, oh, I think in the 2020s, inflation is going to be, it'll average significantly higher than the 2010s. Well, and then the other part of it too is that is there is no, and I don't think anybody would make an argument that this isn't the case, but, you know, fuel is a, and energy is a big source of, uh, of inflation, right? Yeah. Um, when you look at it, the people that are predicting things go back to the way they were pre-COVID as far as the you know 2% growth, 1% inflation, that, that's, those, that, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I'm looking at those people and going, listen, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, happened before, it'll happen again, but this just seems really clear to me. I, I don't think they're seeing the field clearly, right? One of the things, as you get supply tightness in, in, in fuel or in energy and oil and these kind of – what the one thing I can guarantee you – is new supply is not going to come on as fast as it has in the past, right? Look at ESG, look at government policy, right? That has fundamentally changed, right? You're, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get oil, in my opinion, to go from, you know, pop to 80 to 90 and all of a sudden see a flood of investor capital into shale again. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's already been made very clear and, and it's kind of getting hit from all angles. So you have the ESG angle, the, the government angle, but also like investors, like it, investors are, you got really tired of having their money lit on fire by just drilling more. <laughs> yeah. um, You're talking and, to one of them. Yeah. So if you go back and look at all the, all of their, you know, slide decks from, you know, five, 10 years ago, and it was all about how much they were drilling. Cause that's what everyone wanted. They drill more. Cause everyone thought, you know, it'd be over a hundred dollars forever. Well, now they're all, what they're all pitching in their, you know, slide decks is how much money they're not spending, how much they're not drilling. You know, it's, it's all about, returning money to shareholders and shareholders love it. They'll punish you if you don't do it that way. And they'll reward you if you do. So you're, you're seeing huge buybacks and dividends and withhold withholding, pay, you know, paying down debt, but also withholding, you know, CapEx. So as, as long as that continues and eventually obviously people will come in, but it's not going to be at, you know, $65 oil. It's going to be over a hundred dollars where folks feel comfortable enough to kind of get back in the water. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, yeah, this is about right. Oil, oil needed to do this, and oil should be about sixty-five. To me, that's that makes no sense because you're not going right. to get you're not going to get a high oil price, or you're not you're not going to get a break in oil that forces it lower until you have significant investment and and production increases, which so far we just don't have. Obviously, OPEC is adding back, but even now we got to the point where OPEC spare capacity is smaller than what we're used to. It's, it's significantly lower than, than it has been really for the last decade. Uh, obviously, we've had the strategic you know, uh, petroleum reserve releases, but that, that's kind of a sideshow because it's going to get added back. A lot of it's leased, so it has to get added back with 
with you know some interest kind of uh that, that's really just a sideshow and and the american spr is already already well below its 10-year average so if you and a lot of that oil that's sitting in there is already kind of contracted out we already know it's going to be sold that it's already like on the books so what what can even be sold out of the spr moving forward is basically nothing so when you hear new threats to do even more SPR releases, just know that's not, that's basically fake news. Like that's, that's just a way to try to jawbone the market that all that oil is, is spoken for. So that let levers essentially already been pulled in the U S it's already been pulled in, in China, Chinese, you know, oil, uh, inventories are very, very low. Uh, so really we're in a period where a lot of folks need to add to inventories you know, domestically. So they're going to have to do a lot of buying and, you know, when they they had the opportunity to do a bunch of buying at 40, 50, 60, and they're probably going to have to do a lot of that buying, in my opinion, north of 100. Yeah, no, it's certainly that certainly seems to be the case. Um, the 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 other thing that I think has changed and, and we're kind of getting away. I, this is macro, but it's it's a little bit more, uh, let's say, subjective, I guess. Um, the other thing that I think has changed that I haven't really heard, I've heard some people talk about, but I, it'll be interesting to see the way it plays out. Although I feel pretty sure in my, you know, from, from sitting here today, the way it's going to look. So, I mean, it'll obviously look different, but um, the other thing that I think has changed that, that isn't getting paid enough attention to is the fact that, you know, the taxpayers, right? The common man, the average consumer, their expectation of government action in the face of economic headwinds, is in my opinion is radically different than it was pre-COVID, right? I personally am of the belief that recessions are now considered politically um, unexpedient, for lack of a better term, right? Like, uh, and and that's kind of one of the things I look at for the deflationistas out there. I'm looking at them and going, "Hey guys, um, why in the world do you think <laughs> that they're going to let inflation hit de- deflation hit this market?" And, and and I agreed with your assessment earlier about saying I think we've uh, entered a new regime. The terminology I've used is I think we've crossed the event horizon of inflation. And I think one of the biggest drivers is is I believe central banks are in a place where they can't get out. You know, Powell can talk tough all he wants. I'd like to see what he's going to do when the SPY or when the S&P is 20 percent off its high. Right. That's that's been the pain point in the past. Right. Um would you agree with that? Like, I, and you also said they're going to be deflationary threats always, right? Um, I kind of look at it like the story of the last 10 years where it was always the deflationary threat and then you saw that reflation, right? I think it's going to be the same thing, just reverse, right? Where you've got the steady trend of inflation with the deflationary threats. Um, and perhaps left alone with as much debt as we have, those deflationary threats would turn into a collapse of sorts, I, I just I don't understand why anybody thinks that central banks are going to sit by and watch that happen. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, t- to me, what's most important with all with like this whole discussion is the fact that I, I think you know for the first time we really saw fiscal come in to be sort of the backstop for economic problems in- instead of just monetary. And moving forward, like, like you say, like voters have kind of this new expectation. So I think I think that's spot on, and I think it's kind of a that's like a sort of a ratcheting effect where, you know, you have a you know like a kind of a nasty recession or economic decline, your you know unemployment spikes, then folks kind of think about like well last time this happened you know I got I got a check for X thousands of dollars in the mail so where's that at, uh, so I think that does kind of become the, the, like a new normal and people begin to expect that and 
you know, voters expect that the politicians have to deliver on it. Um, I, I don't think we're in, you know, a, a new MMT regime where we get that kind of spending uh, year round every year. But right. I do think, but I do think we're, you know, so I think we'll have some really ugly fiscal slowdowns where the, we have, a, you know, a, a big contraction in the, in the fiscal deficit that does hurt markets, you know, eventually. But I, as soon as that slows markets down, instead of just having the Fed cut rates, you'll have the Fed cut rates and, and then Congress, you know, do some stimulus, whether that's direct checks or, you know, also some, some spending to you know and, and whether it's defense or infrastructure or whatever to get money money moving in the economy so it with that new new fiscal reaction function to go with monetary you know that that just changes everything i all this inflation we're experiencing right now in my opinion is just full stop 100 percent because of the fiscal expansion that we had uh last year and it's important to note you know that, that was bipartisan one happened under trump one happened under biden they were both happened with bipartisan support in Congress. So this is not really like a left right thing. Obviously they'll, they'll take turns pretending they care about debt and deficits at times, but you know, whenever the chips are down they're they're going to, they're going to give out stimulus money. And I, th- I think that's super important to think about moving forward. Um, and, and the kind of the good news from that is that it could let the, the fed, you know, raise nominal rates at least back up to a, a level that, that feels a little bit normal so that they have room to, make some actual, you know, cuts at some point. Um, but I don't expect them to tighten on a real basis anytime soon. And, and it, we could be in a, in a situation now where they're so behind the curve that they start popping off 25 basis point, you know, hikes late next year. And it just does nothing. The markets don't care. Like it just doesn't do anything because inflation is so high that that's kind of an irrelevant number. Yeah. Right. Until, well, and we've seen that movie before, right? So they continue to hike until it, that number isn't irrelevant. Um, sure, but but hey, at least then maybe you have three percent interest rates and or four percent interest rates, and it feels you know normal, and and at least you have something to cut instead of I would, yeah from two to zero. Right, I was gonna say yeah, at least you've at least you've clawed back some ammo. You know, um, another interesting one that I think is funny that's caught up in all this. Unless again, getting back to the macro outlook, um, and, and and that's why I think that. You know, in every big sudden pullback, there's always opportunity to be had, right? There, it just there, there always is, um, and we're kind of at that point now where, and and we've gotten smacked around a little bit, Chase. I don't make any bones about it. I think uh, I think the value portfolio is down about twelve percent off its high. It was right at forty. It was up forty on the year. Now it's up twenty seven, twenty eight, something like that, mm-hmm. um, over the last two weeks. So we've been smacked around a little bit, hedged it up now, stopped the bleeding, and now we're kind of looking for some things to buy at. Um, I, the action in uranium based on the thing, the uranium stocks based on the things that I'm looking at is a bit of a head scratcher. I'm trying to figure out how any of this has anything to do with uranium. Um, is there any, is there anything to this pullback in uranium or is this just muscle memory, you know, sell everything that is, you know, uh, uh, considered to be inflation related in, in times like these? What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I think, I think you nailed it. I, I, if, actually, if you look at spot spot prices of uranium, it's actually really strong. Uh, so it, it doesn't make much sense uh, from that perspective. Uh, yeah, I think it's just when we're in a risk off environment, and I think a lot of people that own uranium, like me, also own like oil and gas. And right. There's probably people, you know, just having to sell what's been working and uh, sell the. And a lot of things, you know, we're in December. I think a lot of you know fund managers are up fifty percent on the year, and they're horrified that's going to go to zero. So a lot of people are just just selling to lock in performance and to start over next year. I think there's a lot of different uh, factors I, I, at play here. 
But I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't. I'm, just, I'm buying this dip on uranium for sure. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of hedge funds or fund managers up 50 percent this year. Well, uh, they are if they owned uranium all year. Well, yeah, I just. But my point is, is how many of them are? The, how many of those are out there? Um, uh, no, and, and and again, this is not a recommendation for anybody at home. But you guys have probably heard us talking about uranium for a long time. If you don't have exposure, I think this is an appropriate place to start building a position. And by that, don't go out and sell the farm and buy it. Right. Make sure you got some ammo to, to average and lower, because the one thing I, you know, I want people to know about this on the, the uranium thing truly is a value play. It's a longer term deal. I don't think the uranium. Now, they could be. There's periods of times in the past where this has occurred. And if it does, great. But kind of the way that we're looking at it is saying, look, we're looking at this as a two to three year type deal, possibly even longer. And we will buy when valuations get compelling. Um I know these things can go nuts, but that's not why we're buying them. Um, you know, if you know, it's, I don't see this as the type of opportunity of like buying IPOs in the last you know eighteen months. This, this to me is more of a value play. Do, would you agree with that statement, Chase? That 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 this is more of a, a long term value play. That the secular winds are now at uranium's back, and now is the time to buy it, and then you know, kind of top the positions off on any big overdone pullbacks? Or are you looking, is this kind of a fireworks setup that you expect to go big in the next year and a half or so? I mean, that's that's definitely very possible, but I I try not to think of it that way, and I've kind of been forced not to think of it that way because I've I've been long uranium since 2016. Oof. Um, and it, you know, it didn't really work until, I mean, it kind of started working last year, but really this year is when it took off. Um, I mean, the, the the investment case has been clear at, at least since 2016, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so it, it's easy for me to have a long-term kind of view of this thing because I I have had one for you know, five years already. Uh, but it, it, I mean, I could see, you know, a fireworks situation, but, but even then I don't think this will become fully valued in the next year or two. I think it's got a long way to go, you know, even, even so the uranium kind of mining ETF is, is 25% off its highs, but still up 80% on the year. So that shows you the kind of year it's having. Um, and got, and, but, and, but, and then, but, but even, but even, even with that being said, you're still essentially below the cost of production for what you can sell your uranium at. So we're still nowhere near where we need to be with, with the, the value of uranium. Where are we sat on spot right now? I haven't looked uh, in a couple the, of days. The last I saw was like 45 and that was maybe yesterday, I think. Yeah, so I mean, you're getting, you're watching these uranium stocks getting pounded. Twenty-five to thirty percent kind of seems what's standard across the board right now, at least looking at it from our end. And spot really hasn't budged. Yeah, there's a lot of just, I mean, there's a lot of stuff getting thrown out with the with the bathwater right now, just because it's risk off, liquid, kind of a mini liquidity event, and it's just and, and happening during December where a lot of people are away from the desk, so it's just get, getting a little. I, I think a lot of stuff getting oversold, and including stuff that I don't like, you know, like. Even some tech stuff's probably getting a little oversold right now. Yeah, watching DocuSign take a forty percent nosedive. <laughs> that was that was kind of uh, you know even even for a salty value guy like me, I, <laughs> I called up our analyst this morning and our junior analyst, and I go, "Hey, I want you to get in there right now and deep dive on Docu." And he's like, "We were looking at that a year ago," and I go, "I know, but I, I want you to look at it again." You know, let's take a look at this thing and let's start figuring out areas where we'd want to pull the trigger at. Um, and I'm not advising other people do that, but I'm saying like, if you've been listening to us and, you know, three weeks ago, I was telling you guys, the other thing I was thinking back to Chase, it was about three weeks ago, we had an up day in the markets and the VIX was up like six or 7%. 
um, indexes were up like three tenths of a percent, four tenths of a percent, maybe even half a percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time saying that has really been a bad omen for the last couple of years. You know, when when markets are sold, the green and the VIX is too. There's no guarantee, never is. But I was telling that was kind of one of the reasons why we were a little more defensive, not as defensive as I should have been in retrospect. But um, uh, you know, I was telling people on the on the on the show, just hey guys, this is not you know this is not a time to be a hero. Maybe you get a Santa Claus rally here, but you know this VIX thing isn't a good sign. A lot of this stuff has run really hot. Just kind of felt like there was time for a little bit of a slowdown. If those if those people have positioned themselves accordingly. Um, I, I kind of think, and I, and I feel like I'm hearing this for you and, and feel free to correct me, but at least for us, I'm starting to, I'm starting to pull out the buy list. I'm starting to look at different things that have gotten hit, different things I want to pick up, different things I might want to buy a little more of. Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that you think that this might be a time to start nibbling at the edges? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I think, I think this could go on for a little bit longer and maybe even through December. Um, but yeah, you're starting. To, I mean, you're starting to get push some stuff down into areas where, it, in my opinion, it makes sense. It makes sense to start buying, and this is the, to me. This is why you, why you sell rips, even the stuff you love, and and then you you know, you buy things that are you know getting beat up like they are right now. You, a lot of stuff's getting over oversold on you know any technical kind of way you want to look at that. Uh, so yeah, to me, to me that makes perfect sense. And I actually listened to that show and and. It was funny because I, I was had had the same exact feeling. I, I watched VIX super closely, and I like watching it versus uh, the market itself because you, every once in a while you'll see that happen and that that little divergence. And it's usually when the VIX is really low, yeah. And you start you start to see that divergence, and your spidey sense just kind of goes up. Not, like you say, not perfect, but oftentimes it does kind of it's kind of letting you know things are about to, to change a little bit. Yeah, it's it, 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 it. Honestly, when I look at the different things that I'm looking at for warning signs. Um, and, and we keep loose track of it. It's not like I'm putting, I probably should be putting stuff like that in an Excel spreadsheet just to see patterns. But th- that one is one that I never, I never ignore. Um, yeah. It's, it's been right too many times. And, and it's, it's one that is probably one of my biggest trigger signals. You know, when I see a market that looks strong with a VIX that's popping off a very low level, um, and that's, that's obviously played out like a gem. I can't use uh, options in the portfolio, but Funny story, my 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 personal trainer, um, ex NFL guy, he just he abuses me, um, and it's good. So, but while we're doing it, I help him with his portfolio, right? So um, I always tend to give him. He's a younger guy, really aggressive, and what I do is I'll give him option versions of trades that we're doing. So um, he loaded up on some options on the levered VIX, like the UVXY, the ETF. <laughs> Cause we were trying to figure out, okay, what is the most, and there, maybe there's another way we could have gotten more leverage, but I was just, you know, I, I'm, I'm working out on a treadmill. So I was like, dude, just buy, take 1% of your portfolio, buy some calls deep out of the money on UVXY. Uh, and that was like four weeks ago. I think that position popped like 880% or something like to, that. Had to, yeah. Oh you're yeah. Gonna, you're going to lose every dollar or you're going to make a bunch. Yeah. Right. Like lottery but, ticket. Yeah. but, but the beautiful thing is, and like I was telling him, I go, this 1% position will hedge out your entire portfolio. Exactly. You know, if that sucker goes. So, um, no, that's, I, yeah, I, I wish, you know, I wish I could tell you that we loaded up on that, but we didn't. Um, what else are you seeing, Chase? What, what are you seeing on the, the, the other thing that is really interesting to me, um, and I actually, got a, I actually got a question about it, and I thought it was, it was actually a very intelligent question. I hope I actually end up getting to talk to the guy, but uh, we do a Q&A session after our virtual roadshows, and we had one last night, and the guy was asking me specifically about 
uh, Alibaba, what we thought about Chinese stocks, and if we thought that it had fallen to a level that, that made some good value. And, uh, and then asked me what I thought about ADRs. And I was sitting there going, God, this guy is just a perfect client for us. <laughs> He's asking me about ADRs and valuations on Baba. And I'm like, man, we got we to gotta get this guy's account. Um, but anyway, the, the, the bloodletting in those stocks has just been something else. Um, we took a shot at Baba like around 150, uh, rode it up to 170, thankfully sold off about half the position at 160. And then unloaded the rest at like 145 or something just because it got too sporty. And I went, you know, that, that, was the, that was the max downside exposure I'd take on it. The thing was down at like 112 today. Um, wh- what do you make of that? Is, you, is there anything going on there in the Chinese side of it? I know the economic data is bad, but um, I'm still under the impression until I get proved otherwise that the economic data in China is what the CCP wants it to be. I- is something changing there or is this just markets? So I think I think plenty's changing, um, and and I, yeah, Bob, Bob is actually a pretty good level on the chart right now. But um, so it's kind of a multi-pronged thing. For one, you know, obviously we, we we were just talking about the insane like huge demand in the U.S. Well, whenever you have that kind of demand in the U.S., like you're you're having a huge current account surplus for for China because of all of the exports. So you're just firing up their export machine. And, you know, if you have your export machine getting fired up, you can kind of start to pull back risks in other areas. So they've they've really gone after real estate. They've gone after tech. They've gone after, you know, all these different sectors and segments of, of their economy with, with no fear. Because, like, sure, their growth is bad, but, you know, their exports are so strong right now. That, and, they're, and even the currency is so strong right now. It kind of let them get away with, with kind of shaving off a bunch of other risks that they needed to take care of. Um, so I think they, that's what they did. They, they made the most of that opportunity. Uh, obviously as demand cools in the U S they're not going to have that luxury. Uh, so, you know, late Q1, that, that kind of fades. So they're, they're already talk they're already starting to talk about, uh, cutting, cutting rates. And they, they recently told local governments, Hey, go spend some more money. Uh, they're loosening property curbs, uh, around the country in some areas. So you're starting to see kind of, that policy support come back, N- nothing huge yet, but it's starting to come back in, in small ways. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's just growth and inflation have just kind of just steadily been getting beat up in, in China essentially all year. So it's kind of natural for stocks to, to not do well in that environment, especially while you're, you know, attacking all of your major, like, you know, big cap stocks, just literally going after them. Uh, yeah. So like it, it all made sense for to me this year. It was, it, it, it was nothing that I, I found weird. I, I could easily see Chinese stocks having a good year next year if they if they do really turn on some some even even you know kind of middling policy support this year, cutting rates or you know spinning spinning back in the fiscal and, and adding back into you know kind of loosening up on property and infrastructure again. What what is the if you could make a stab at it? What is this? Why are they going after these stocks so aggressively? Is this them trying to beat what they're worried about being excess out in in the economy, froth in the economy, or is this more politically motivated? I I really can't make heads or tails of it. So I think it's both. I I think I think part of it is is you know, these companies are just getting too powerful, uh, which no, no one is allowed to get too powerful, you know, in a place like that. Because uh, you can tell some of this is personal between, you know, Xi and, and people like Jack Ma. Jack Ma doesn't, never really kept a low profile, and I think that hurt him. 
I, I feel um, like I feel like Z reminds me of of like Ike Clanton in Tombstone, you know, where he says "Law Dog," that just don't go around here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, I mean, you have other people like the the guy that runs the the giant battery company uh, CATL. It, you look at that guy; he has more money than Jack Ma, and no one seems to care because he keeps his mouth shut and he's in the right sector. Versus, you know, some if you're just going out there giving out micro loans and so, you know some of the some of that kind of fintech stuff was genuinely ripping people off. Um, and you know, like consumer protection is kind of the kind of thing they take very seriously there. So data protection, even it seems weird to think that they would care about data protection, but it seems like they do. Um, so the tech companies were doing things they didn't like, but also getting too rich and too powerful, which just not really allowed to happen. Chase, I think uh, it makes I think it makes perfect sense that they're worried about data protection. My father, my little anecdotal. My father once told me as a kid, he goes, "If you want to find the thief on the street, find the guy with the best security system." And <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, it's true. Obviously, there's exceptions, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, it takes one to know one, right? I think China's worried about data security because they know they know firsthand uh, what a problem that can be and how much how much chaos that can create. Definitely. Um, okay, so you think that, but you think the deleterious impact this is having on markets, you think that's going to cause them to moderate at some point, you think, or, cha- or, 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 or that chances are good that that happens maybe next year and that, and that some of these things might be buys around these areas? Yeah, that, 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 that sums it up perfectly. I, I, think, I think Chinese stocks, especially a lot of these oversold stocks, um, and, and for all I know, you know, Alibaba has just major internal problems. And a lot of people think it's a fraud. It very well, maybe you have no idea, but just, just their reported numbers are, I mean, they're, they're not bad. They, they have pretty solid free cash flow, and, and they're making more money, a lot more money than they were when their valuation was a lot higher. So, I mean, it obviously wouldn't, wouldn't be a stretch for them to start bouncing from here. I mean, according to their numbers, they're performing better than Amazon with a valuation like Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, I mean, that's, and, now cut more than way more than in half. So, right now, the only problem I have is that, and I'm not saying it's this. Um, I don't think it's this. I think that it, there's much more reality to it. I just don't think there's a lot of look through when I look at their corporate structure. I, I remember the first time I saw it laid out on a chart, I went, that reminds me of Enron. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it's a dead ringer. There's so many bloody divisions and subsidiaries and you and I both know you know, unneeded complexity is a hallmark of fraud. Absolutely. And I don't, maybe, do you think it's, do you, mm, I don't know. Well, we're, we're, we're completely shooting in the dark here. Do you think it's possible that the CCP might be trying to rein that in? You know, I never thought about it from that angle. I had neither um, until just now. I mean, I think probably because I've always viewed it as, as some of these companies, a lot of the reason that they're so opaque is because because they're overtly not state anything, while probably the reality is they have a lot of state involvement. Uh, and, and I don't know. I think I would think that would be less so for like a, such a retail company because it's not really a strategic sector type, type right. thing for Alibaba the way some of these other ones are where, you know. So like perfect example is uh, Huawei where they – pretend to have you know very little to do with it but it's to me at least pretty obvious that there's heavy heavy state involvement and subsidies um so it, i mean yeah it could be a case where there's some couple oligarchs involved with some shell games that are trying to sock away a bunch of money and they figured that out and you know and they, they've 
found a way to go after that. It's it's definitely speculation, and I have nothing to go on to show that, but it, it's definitely an interesting thought experiment, and it does kind of make sense. Yeah. What um, any have you been paying? I mean, I know you've been paying attention to it, but any new uh, um, you know drum beats or war drums or any any new news on the on the China China Taiwan front? No. And it's funny. I have this debate often with, with friends. I, um, I mean, Louis Vincent Gav is to me as the, the, the best kind of explanation for this and the best viewpoint of this. I, I really don't think this is going to happen. Uh, it as far as like a real invasion and especially anytime soon, I, I think this, the risk reward for, for China to do that is just, it's just way too skewed yeah. to the risk to the risk side. Um, to, and to his point, like the, the only reason strategically you would want to do it, it would, would be for, um, for for chips because you know Taiwan just dominates the industry, but what, you know instead of trying to knock the place over, and I'm sure there's contingency plans to get a bunch of those people out fast and and set them up somewhere else anyway. You know why not just buy them? And, and the, to to Louis's point, China has done that. They've gone in and just very much overpaid some of the best engineers and brought them onto the mainland. So I that kind of that kind of stuff makes more sense to me. That that would just be like a vanity move and 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 just. You know, kind of. It, it doesn't yeah, it seem. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem like their style, too. It seems far more belligerent than than they right. are. Um, the other one that you brought up too is is I was thinking about that the other day. Interesting that you brought it up. Um, what was the name of that company where where the Chinese there was like a merger, there was a purchase. The Chinese basically back alley stole the company and the technology from somebody it, it was a um jeez i'm forgetting the name of it it's a chip maker mostly on the military side um they did kind of a bait and switch deal it was supposed to be a merger and then somehow all the ownership of the ip got put on one side of the of the merger and not the other and then basically they just cut the other side loose and 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 pulled the rug out from underneath them um greenwald did a story on this um gosh dang yeah, I can't. I can't remember off the top of my head. But you know the story I'm talking about. No, uh, no it's not registering uh, at the moment. It happened uh, how, like how in long, 19. Was it? it was like in the last two years at some point. I I, I want to say it was like, if memory serves me, it was like a British chip company. Oh, okay. That specializes in making chips specifically for military purposes, and they gotcha. had a special yeah, IP. Yeah, that, that that rings a little bit of a bell. Yeah. Anyway, Europe. but but that goes right along with your side. You know, if you're you know. We know that they're not shy about using the printing press and throwing the dollars around. Why would you take that the risk on the international stage and all of the completely unpredictable turn? That just does not seem Chinese, right? That's yeah, too. I mean, if you, it, at that point, you unite you unite, you unite the entire West against you from a trade perspective. Uh, I mean, and you they depend on the the rest of the world for energy and food and and those are very important things like I hope that goes without saying yeah that's and not a very it, Sun Tzu style way of yeah if you can't feed your people and you can't import enough oil because you know either you're just getting physically blockaded or people just choose not to trade with you because of what you just did that's not really worth you know getting grabbing that island back it yeah just doesn't this doesn't make sense yeah because you think it's yours N- not to mention the fact that it could start a you know a kinetic conflict with 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 the west and and one that they could you know very possibly take severe casualties on and obviously china's built a lot of really cool new new stuff in the last 10 20 years but you know they don't they they haven't proven they can use it they haven't really fought a war in 50 60 whatever years so uh, there's a lot that goes into in, into fighting 
you know, kinetic conflicts other than how shiny your toys are. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I, I, you know, it, it just, it seems so, just so unchinese. The interesting part to me though is, and again, this is me shooting in the dark a little bit too. The interesting part to me is that Z and other Chinese premieres and the CCP in general seem to like to sort of test leaders. Um, and you know, get, get, kind of throw things out there to to see how people react. You know, testing them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that a little bit. You know, regarding Taiwan, I know that they know that the West is concerned about that. I could see them probing it a little. Sure, I, which they're definitely doing. Yeah, right. Well, and that, that, but that's, but that makes sense, right? Even if you know you're never going to go into Taiwan, right. sure, probe it a little bit, see how they respond, see what they think. Um, yeah, that just seems far too, far too belligerent to me. Where are we at on uh, Nat Gas, man? Any thoughts on Nat Gas? I know you're watching that carefully. What, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's definitely been getting beat up here lately, and that's mostly just because of short-term uh, weather models, um, which I could go into more if you want. But at the end of the day, we just had kind of a warm start, not kind of, a very warm start to December, and that's obviously taking the edge off uh, kind of the, the near-term pricing for, for gas. But you could you know, the stuff in, in later 2022 or 23, like all that stuff kind of stayed put or even moved higher. Uh, gas in Europe is still very expensive. And the, the LNG prices they're having to pay in Europe and, and Asia are still sky high. So we really just kind of kind of increased divergence between overseas pricing and U.S. pricing here in the last, uh, like call it a month, month. And, yeah, well, yeah, about a month, um, really week or two. Uh, it, it's really just weather models. And then, I think that's going to flip mid, mid to late December. We should get back into a a regime where we can we can start getting some significant cold coming into the U.S. and if and when that happens, then you know you, you can have get gas go kind of right back to to new highs, um, which is that's really my base case. But I, I did I, the chart got so bad uh, a couple of days ago that I closed out a lot of my a lot of my futures positioning. I, I don't really mess with my equities because I don't mess around with leverage on that side, but did have to get out of the, out of the game on, on the future side, just because the chart broke so bad. But yeah, overall, I think everything's going to be fine. You, you look in Europe and they're drawing down their supplies way faster than they normally are. And, and that's against way less supply than they normally have. So to if, me, we're if, still if, in, if, in a when, huge crisis mode there. If we're starting mild, why are they drawing down faster? So that that's Europe. So Europe has actually been cold. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. You're talking here yeah. in the U.S. in particular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the weather's been mild in the U.S., but uh, Europe just went through a pretty pretty nasty cold snap, a lot of snow, especially up in Scandinavia. It was like extreme temperatures, setting some records and stuff. Okay, so it, okay, so it is getting frosty. Any any, what do you think about the long term weather lo- uh, models? I mean, I know you're watching those too. Do, any change to those at all? Not, I mean, as far not, as the next the, the entire winter. No, I, I still think we have a good chance of that being cold. Obviously, the farther you go out, this the, the the murkier it gets. But it still looks like we have the chance to kind of have the, the the polar vortex park park where it needs to park to kind of reach in and get a lot of really cold shots. One thing I will say is it. I, I was really looking for like a super persistent, just all winter cold, and it it's starting to look a little bit more like it could be more mild with just super cold shots. So you, you think about like that Texas storm where it just got absurdly cold for a few days, kind of more, more stuff like that, but over and over and, and um, for, through most of the country instead of, you know, just a one-off. But 
I, I'm, I am starting to get concerned we might not have that this super persistent below average uh, temperatures. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, January is going to be kind of the make or break month. Uh, November was just really normal. We had a couple, you know, cold shots, but for the most part, just normal. December starting out warm. I think it'll close out cold, but probably finish the month warmer than normal. So it's going to be kind of be on January to write the ship on my my calling for a, a, a broadly cold winter. And Europe's been my saving grace as far as just the the, the overall call because it's been very cold there. And China had some very cold early on, but it's, it's warmed up a lot. That's it's so that's probably why our Equinor positions have held up better than others. Exactly. Huh? Yeah, and that's what, that's one thing I've been telling to people. You know, hey, if if you if you're getting nervous about the the you know front end futures price breaking, like you, you and you don't own futures and you're only in equities, like hey, like just overweight Europe short term and kind of, as a, as a kind of a way to you know avoid pain. But if these weather models flip toward to the end of December, uh, there's something called the MJO and it has phases. And when it's in phase eight, it gets really cold in the U.S. It looks like it's kind of in phase seven now. If that thing shows it can get into phase eight, and then then all of a sudden, all the models will start, you know, showing way colder temperatures, and gas will go. Oh, look at that! And then it'll go flying higher again. So it could easily flip. Yeah, and for the people out there that have heard us uh, talking about energy and stuff, um, full disclosure, uh, I, I, I I think I've said this many times, but the I, the level that we were really paying attention to was that ninety eight to one hundred level on XOP. And the kind of the conclusion that we've come to is we will stay uh, unhedged long above that level. We will be hedged up below that level. And obviously, we've got points where we'll just get out of the trade altogether if it gets to a certain place. But um, we hedged up about 85 to 90 percent of our energy exposure Tuesday, which I'd have done it sooner. Um, but you know, we just playing those levels, right? Just, just watching the levels and, and trying to stay disciplined about it. But, um, if you guys have gotten long energy, uh, as I've been saying for the last three weeks, be careful. We're, we're in a place, I'm not telling you to give up on it, but you, you might want to put some protection on of some kind and, and ride this one out and see where it goes. Um, but you know, as you know, Chase, th- this is when you see big opportunities in commodity markets, this is the price to play. Is it not? Yeah, absolutely. And and really, to me, the, the fundamentals just haven't changed, especially for oil. For gas, like gas production is going up. And I, I think I think after this winter, you, you'll, you'll actually see a, a significant capex in production, you know, increases that make nat gas, you know, a year or two from now, way, way less interesting, maybe. Um, so that that has a kind of a shorter runway than oil and and uh, and coal, coal's one that you know maybe has already kind of become a real problem just because uh, I mean prices are essentially at all time highs in, in America but China just went completely ballistic with their production and and has kind of even began to overproduce so that that really changed the global landscape for coal so that that's one that got a lot less uh, compelling really in the last I don't know six weeks. Yeah, boy, they sat on that. That was uh, that's what made us finally cash in our BTU. I I just the, watching the weight that they could yeah. throw around in that market, it just unnerved me and I went, "Okay, this is I don't I don't want to get hammered over here and miss the full picture." So, again, if you're still on the coal trade based on listening to us talk about it, proceed with extreme caution. That that one, don't you feel like that's probably one of the hardest ones on the whole energy side to try to get a feel on? Yeah, de- definitely, and, and it kind of reminds me in gas that like where you have like a, a U.S. market and then like a global market that that do very different things, 
But what's interesting is like BTU, I mean, they have, you know, minimal involvement with, with China and, and the global markets, but for the most part, you know, a lot of these domestic U.S. names, there, there are domestic U.S. names that have nothing to do with the global market. They really just supply to, to U.S. utilities. And yet they followed you know, kind of the China futures price more than they did U.S. prices. Like there's no way to make sense of that, but it is what happens at, at times. So yeah, China, China like going nuts with, with coal production and, and kind of holding down their domestic futures and even the kind of benchmark global future price. Like it just it sat on coal no matter who you were selling to or, or what prices you were getting. So it's, it's an interesting market in that way. Um, it, it, we got to the point where if we don't have a lot of stress in natural gas inventories that push a lot and, you know, a lot of cold weather that pushes a lot of production uh, from, you know, or into, into coal for, for electricity production this winter, then it's going to be difficult to really take out those highs and do much else. Anything else that you've noticed that we haven't covered yet? Anything else that you think we should be keeping an eye on? I just There's a lot going on, and the reason I know that is I'm having a tough time tracking it. I know you're not. Um, so it's just anything else that you've noticed that you've seen that we should be keeping an eye on? I, so I, I feel like I always, in every podcast I'm on, with, with, I get that question, and I always talk about agriculture because I never tend to talk about it, but it's always one I, I close on because it, I just always think it is something you got to watch. Um, I, there's so much in agriculture to like. Uh, obviously, I mean, we, you, you, and you know very well that corn is is my favorite in, in the in the marketplace. But I, I just think corn is is severely underpriced for what could happen uh, for the rest of the, the call it the next year, just because of um, the price of, of fertilizer is so so unbelievably high, and 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 just the you know you can't get it all the time. So there's a shortage of it that. People aren't going to be able to plant as much corn as everyone seems to think right now, in my opinion. And I think whenever they start planting the crop next year, the numbers are going to come out and they're going to be very disappointing. And the price is going to have to just really re-rate a lot higher. Um, so corn is one, definitely one to watch. But uh, even like orange juice, if it gets some weird weather, you know, coffee, there's, there's a lot of interesting commodities Hey, you 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 were going back and forth with me the other day on Twitter because I was talking about uh, a live cattle because cattle is in a just unbelievably yeah. great bull market. Like, I, obviously, you know most of, most of the listeners aren't probably aren't going to be out trading futures and able to go go trade live cattle. But no, it's no, hold on, it's imp- but it's important to know that there are you know nor should they bull be markets. Though. Yeah, absolutely. Don't go out there and chase cattle no. futures, guys. Don't no, do it. No. Uh, but but it is important to note, just come from a macro standpoint, that there are a lot of agricultural commodities and and very impressive looking uh, bull markets, and they might be kind of the last commodities to let go whenever inflation does start to uh, kind of recede a bit next year. Well, we, what is the what exactly is what is I don't understand where the shortage in cattle is coming from. So it. It's very complex, but and, and a lot of this is global market stuff too. The demand from Asia and things, but uh, if you think about feed, uh, so I just talked about corn. Corn is a big a big feed uh, for you know, for livestock, and if corn oh. reaches a certain point, it becomes too. It, it it doesn't even make sense to raise cattle um, because you know your feed costs more than you can ever make back on 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 your cattle. So you just you just don't. So just supply and demand can can get impacted by grain so it's, you have this weird like food chain well i mean literally but it's not the way i meant it where so like natural gas price spikes which 
which ends up creating a spike in the price of fertilizer because it's a major input in fertilizer, which is a major input for corn, which is a major input for livestock. So you, you have these weird like ripple effects. And you would think all that would get priced in instantly together, but it doesn't. Like People somehow can't see the first one impacting the fourth one. So you, there's interesting opportunities in between the first one moving and the last one moving where they kind of slowly kind of domino off of each other. And, and that's, in my opinion, that's kind of what, what we're seeing in, in some of the livestock prices as, as well as the, you know, grain prices. Yeah, it's a lot of, you said cattle and I went, wow, that's, uh, you never surprised me, pal. You've always got to hey, accept there, your always There's always a bull market somewhere. There's always a bull market somewhere, man. All right, pal. Well, hey, we will let you get back to what you do. I appreciate the time as always. Thank you for the update. And um, as always, man, you let us know if anything uh, anything shakes loose that you think we need to uh, be aware of. And uh, other than that, keep it up. And, and for those of you out there, uh, I say this every single time, but but the, your your if you like what Chase has to do, and I think you should, he's the only research service and analyst out there that we actually pay on full time retainer, um, and I think that kind of says it all. Um, how can they get your reports, Chase? Kind of let them know how they can sign up and, and become a client of Pinecone Macro. Yeah, just you guys can head straight to pinecomacro.com and we, we we just built a brand new awesome website. My wife built it with her bare hands and it's, it's awesome. Uh, so it's, it's much more user friendly. The last one looked like a, a, I don't know, like a MySpace page from 1994 or something. Um, it was all so about the to, content, buddy. So just, just head to pinecomacro.com. Uh, you'll, you'll find everything you need there. And doesn't your starting package, isn't it like twenty nine ninety nine a month or something like that? So the flagship letter is 33, but even for people that don't want to go that far, um, I have a sub stack that's $9 a month that, it takes about I don't know ten percent something like that of the maybe twenty percent of of that flagship letter and just puts it right into a Substack so that people can get even even cheaper access. But that that, that leaves a lot of good stuff out though I will say. Yeah, but for thirty three bucks a month, literally the you're getting all the information that we're paying you for. Um, the only reason I'm paying extra is because I want to be able to get you whenever <laughs> whenever I need you. Um, but I mean, guys, if you're trading your own account or if you're interested in this stuff, I can just promise you there's no better value out there. So um, I think you're giving away the farm personally. And hey, but, I haven't raised prices since 2018, and and inflation's up what six percent right now. So it's on a six percent off sale this year. Yeah, but but it's transient, pal. It's transient. So <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm not raising prices. <laughs> there you go. All right, buddy. And then as you got as always, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Pinecone Macro, um, and you can follow me at, at KYR Radio. But anyway, Chase, thank you so much for coming on, man. Couldn't strongly recommend the service enough. Keep your uh, keep your ear to the ground for us, and let us know if you hear something. We'll do. Thanks. All right, buddy. Have a good one. All right, you guys, we got to tie it up there. Thank you so much for listening to this deep dive in, in the after hours here. And I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, as always, we'll be back next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Opinions expressed in this program are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Clear Creek Financial Management, a registered investment advisor.